0: Hello and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, uh, the director. I'm delighted today to welcome back as a Westminster speaker, one of our very best who's been absent for far too long. I speak of Hassan Nemna, who is principal at Middle East Alternatives in Washington, DC. He's a scholar at the Middle East Institute and contributing editor at FICRA Forum at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. By the way, excuse me. You can subscribe to uh, FICRA Forum uh, complementarily. And I uh, encourage uh, your reading of this publication because it contains some of the most incisive analyses of the Middle East. And of what it publishes, I find Hassan Nemna's The most penetrating analyses. So I pass that on for your consideration. Hassan was previously Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute, Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Director of the Center for Global Engagement at the Institute for American Values. Uh, More pertinently for the subject which Hassan is going to be addressing us on today is his considerable experience in Iraq. Between 1999 and 2008, Hassan Nemna assumed leading functions at the Iraq Memory Foundation, the Iraq Foundation, and the Iraq Research and Documentation Project. I will only add from my own perspective that he greatly contributed to the production of a documentary series of the victims of Saddam Hussein's regime and helped fashion a one-hour television show that became the second most popular in Iraq on ir- Al-Iraqi, sorry, al-Iraqi television. Uh, particularly during the Ramadan period, which of course is when, in the uh, Muslim world, television gets its highest viewership. This was a singular accomplishment. Now, Hassan Nemna specializes in the affairs of the Middle East, North Africa, and the wider world, with a particular emphasis on radicalism and factionalism. He's written in English, Arabic, and French on political, cultural, historical, and intellectual questions concerning the Arab and Muslim worlds. He will now address us on the subject of Iraq, past, present, and pivotal future. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Bob, for your kind words. And uh, really, it's an honor and privilege for me to uh, be associated with the Westminster Uh, from the Institute for this presentation, but also in particular with you having been what you have been in terms of supporting American values, universal values, through your diligent work on helping Iraqis rebuild their information uh, operation in particular after the fall of the dictatorial regime. Indeed, what I'm going to be uh, talking about today is Iraq as it stands, Iraq as it was, and Iraq as it could be. It's Iraq past, present, and pivotal future. What I would propose to you is the following. is that the rise of the new Iraq is naturally conditioned on its ability to successfully face its economic, administrative, and geostrategic challenges. But also, maybe even more importantly, to address, manage, and reform its political culture, its historical legacy, its religious heritage, its national identity, and its place in the world. While the immediate paramount importance of concrete concerns, safety, livelihood, employment, health, education, environment, food security, water security, and other issues, other salient issues that impose themselves cannot be questioned, a new Iraq will succumb to the recurrent and incessant hard challenges that it faces if it does not achieve cultural security. The problematic faced by Mustafa al-Kadhimi, the new Prime Minister of Iraq, in many ways, a paradigm shift in being the Prime Minister of Iraq is evidently structural. He has to face all the the structural issues that are listed and many more, but it's also culture. I'll start by addressing the the present, I'll move to the past, and then to the future. Uh, What I would Evidently, uh, talking about Iraq, we have to talk about the economy of Iraq. This is the major problem that it's facing today. What we have to admit is that 17 years after the fall of the dictatorship, we have to say that Iraq as a viable economy has been a failure. This is a hard admission on the part of the, the Iraqis in particular, but it is a necessary one. Iraq in the course of the past uh, close to two decades, has continued to to rely on an anti-state model. It uh, it has one commodity that it sells, oil, and not even refined oil, and on the basis of the revenue of that commodity, it tries to manage internally. Well, it has not managed it well. The the problem we have, we're facing here, even in terms of the economy, a a problem of false nostalgia you do have people in Iraq saying that the current state of affairs, which is so bad, has to be compared and contrasted with the industrial advancements that Iraq had witnessed in the decades under dictatorship, 70s, but mostly in the 80s, and even in the 90s under harsh sanctions, claiming even that the autarky that Iraq tried to reach was basically an indication that uh, maybe um, dictatorship is the way to go. This is We hear, unfortunately, such voices on social media repeatedly. There's a glorification of the dictator. There's a glorification of the period that was. The problem with this vision, in addition to it basically misrepresenting the advancement that Iraq had made in the uh, 80s and to a certain extent in the 90s by being once by bi- the dictatorship instead of being once despite the dictatorship. It also ignores the fact that these advancements all were set in the context of the regime priorities. The regime priorities were survival. So any advancement that Iraq was able to achieve, the regime was willing to let go instantly in order for it to survive. This is why actually the, the sanctions that were imposed in Iraq uh, need to, to be reviewed and revised because in, a, in, a, in, in more ways than one, to, to sanction a dictatorial regime is uh, to invite that regime to even be more uh, in its imposition, in its uh, basically passing the sanctions on its audience to try to lose but make the, the, the society lose more. In any case, so that is a need of review, but we have to understand that any advancement that was in the course of those two decades were for the survival of the regime, for militarism, clearly, because any so-called scientific advancement was solely for the purpose of uh, more weapons, more uh, uh, tools of war, etc., including weapons of mass destruction, including, basically, uh, pursuits that ended up being uh, beyond wasteful, actually, inviting the world community to to step in. And the third element of uh, the previous period, was cronyism, survival, militarism, and also cronyism, in the course of which only people close to the regime were able to really benefit. So we cannot, I mean, the the talk about the previous model, the previous model is not one to be emulated, but the current model clearly is one that did not work. It did not work because it it was a problem, mainly, of a reliance on the frontier state model, basically, that, that one commodity, but also, uh, uh, an abuse of governance one one can point actually to um, iraq as suffering in the course of the past decade and a half of uh, deep corruption but beyond corruption we're talking about kleptocracy corruption is when you try to uh, basically uh, move around the system in order for example through whether through contracting or whether through extracting undue uh, fees and uh, Uh, funds from the public, you try to enrich yourself. But the kleptocratic system in Iraq was such that basically, by following the rules, the established rules, you can basically enrich yourself as a member of the political elite, and this is exactly what happened. So Iraq suffered, and still suffers, the the, the current prime minister has uh, uh, basically announced that his uh, order of business number one is to try to dismantle this, uh, this, this huge edifice of kleptocracy that there is, but this edifice is there today. We have to admit it. This is why, basically, Iraq, to, uh, despite the fact of it being objectively a very rich country, is in effective bankruptcy. Because the kleptocratic system effectively, if we use here the model of a cow, Sustainable corruption, sustainable kleptocracy, is one that basically makes the cow for its own advantage. Well, Iraq went from a situation in which that cow was milked into a situation where, where the cow was being bled for the advantage of the political class, all the way to the cow being slaughtered for the advantage of this class, which is clearly an untenable model, and th- this is where we have it now crashing it is not at all uh, kind of the chances, the possibility of Iraq lifting itself from this mess is not very high, but this is exactly the challenge that is facing the the, the prime minister today. So if it was simply a question of uh, an economic model that is extremely short-sighted, one of a frontier state, a governance model that is thoroughly unsustainable, one of cryptocracy and uh, beyond milking into bleeding and slaughtering the cow, which is the nation here, or at least the nation's resources. If these were the only two challenges, one would have said that these are very difficult challenges and I do not envy any attempt at trying to uh, rescue the nation from them. Unfortunately, they are only half of the major challenges that face Iraq today. The other two being evidently terrorism and Iranian hegemony. Terrorism is, here again, I mean, the tendency today in Iraqi social media is to try to uh, dismiss terrorism as uh, an artifact of uh, foreign intervention. Uh, It is the U.S. that funds uh, ISIS, presumably, and all sorts of other mythologies that are in circulation. The fact is, I mean, and, and here, I'll, I'll get to talk a little bit more about it later on, but it's important to underline terrorism is both an Iraqi local production and a primary Iraqi export, uh, other than oil, I guess, and this is not someone to be begging about. This is not, I'm, I'm talking here about the, the local production and the global exchange, because yeah, I mean, Iraq did import, for example, from Saudi Arabia the rigidity of uh, the Salafi uh, school of uh, Islamic thought that it um, ultimately the terrorists in, in Iraq were able to uh, expand on and make of it uh, the, the, the extremely harsh jihadism that they, that they promote. But actually, the Islamic State as a global phenomenon is to a large extent an Iraqi-centered Islamic State. And this is something that I think is important for for Iraqis uh, to face down the line. Um, The the, the other side of the equation, because terrorism, which is largely Sunni terrorism, Sunni Islamist terrorism, has to be uh, basically uh, underlined that it comes with as as a counterweight or a counterbalance in terms of the, the, the horrors that Iraq faces, with Iranian hegemony. Here, what we're talking about, the, the overwhelming weight of Iranian penetration in Iraqi society will, will remain to be assessed, but there's no question about it, that it, it is extremely difficult for, for Iraqis to proceed without finding a way to, uh, if not completely, excise this influence, this penetration, at least to reduce it to a manageable level. And this is, again, actually in terms of uh, the, the, the current prime minister keeps on underlining uh, his intent to do it. Whether he's going to be able or not is really questionable, given that, uh, his, uh, th- that Iran ultimately accepted his ascent to the prime ministership for uh, maybe as a concession on their part uh, in recognition of their, uh, the, the state of their influence in Iraq, given the the success of the American policy of engaging Iran in in a stranglehold, in an economic warfare, to force it to change behavior. But also, and another reason that uh, Iran might have uh, tolerated uh, the the, the choice of Mustafa al as prime minister is because it knows it has enough assets positioned in the country to be able to sabotage whatever he tries to engage in. And therefore, we should have no illusion that uh, the, the intent of the economy to uh, simply restore Iraqi sovereignty and Iraqi independence effectively is going to be an easy one, if, if at all. This, these, these four major challenges are like uh, the, uh, the impossible or at least the extremely difficult set of challenges that uh, face Iraq today, and and an economic model that that does not work, a governance model that needs to be scrapped because it's based on the theft of public resources to a cryptocratic uh, arrangement, terrorism, which despite the fact that it has been curtailed, but we know well that uh, what has has been successful so far is being able to... uh, basically defeat them tactically and not necessarily in a strategic uh, final way and finally and actually probably one of the as important as the three together is the iranian heavy uh, overwhelming weight in iraq that said so these are the problems and if it were just for this i I would submit to you this these are the problems of today iraq faces basically an existential uh, problematic. But I would would add to this and actually make it almost as um, prerequisite to be able to succeed in facing those challenges beyond the immediate, beyond the temporary, the need to reconceive Iraq. This is uh, like here, it's not theoretical, this is not about culture as as a high commodity. This is about everyday life. What I would suggest to you is the following. To a large extent, Iraq over the past many decades has not suffered from a decline as much from an induced one, a forced one. Therefore, let's call it a declination. Meaning it did not decline as a result of conditions that are random or conditions that are external to it, there has been really an effort at forcing Iraq to decline. Now it is very kind of convenient for uh, well-meaning Iraqis, well-meaning people in the Middle East, but also people with ideological agendas to agree with that statement right away and point the finger to uh, the party that is presumably responsible. Call it colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, neo-imperialism. That is an outside part. Well, uh, I would suggest, and this is something I'm glad to say, that uh, many in the region are engaged in actually a similar way of uh, looking at the question, this is without denying that external elements influence external elements, pushing enhance a direction or another. But the primary problem that has been faced by Iraq and by the region, Iraqi really as almost like an archetype for the region has been not colonialism, not the outside, but reductionism, the inside. What what we have faced in the course of um, the past century is a work in progress, which is the appropriation of modernity. The region, in its self-awareness, in its self-definition, and Iraq, once again, is kind of a leading uh, a model, a leading example in that, has basically had uh, an incomplete and unachieved, uh, actually a partial appropriation of modernity. And as a result, the effects of uh, reductionism on political culture have been devastating. What sub- sub- else? Subject- Uh, submit to you is the following. What we have is uh, the notion of unity. Unity across the board, the the many ideologies that ended up uh, uh, successively dominating the narrative in Iraq and dominating therefore politics in Iraq and leadership in Iraq and across the region insisted on unity. But unity here was perceived as normative uniformity. In order for unity to be achieved, there needed to be sort of uh, an eradication of difference rather than uh, an embrace of difference as well. So the individual was subsumed into the nation. I mean, the individual is just uh, uh, an atom, a representative of the whole, which is the nation. So instead of the focus being on the citizen, the focus, for example, became on the nation. How we define the nation here, where we have had a number of iterations, a number of different characterizations, but nonetheless, in these different characterizations, the individual was always viewed as basically a pawn or a unit in unity, and therefore the focus is on the nation. But then, as a result of this reductionism, the party gets its, uh, the the nation itself gets subsumed or gets gets to be represented by the party. And therefore, it's no longer about the nation, it's about the party that embodies the nation. And as a further stage of reductionism, the party itself gets reduced, gets subsumed in the figure of the leader. So the leader embodies the party, that embodies the nation, that represents the individual, and the individual is lost. And it becomes a matter, sort of the measure of success, the measure of progress, the measure of uh, being a prevailing is to the extent that the leader has prevailed, the leader has survived, the leader has basically been uh, elevated to where uh, he is. This, is. this is what was with Arab nationalism. This is Arab nationalism might have started as a way of trying, uh, trying to get some... Uh, uh, cultural pride. Soon enough, it evolved from, from that to producing the bath. The bath produced Saddam, and Saddam produced the dictatorship and the terror and the, the, the death that, that we've seen across Iraq up uh, until the fall of the regime. But, again, the same pattern exactly. We're not talking here about uh, an antithesis. We're talking about another production of the same pattern happened with Islamism. So again, instead of uh, even irrespective of the fact that uh, to start with, an Islamic political uh, proposition is already exclusive of non Muslims, but even then, even if we uh, uh, condone that uh, unforgivable exclusion, we're still talking about a proposition that reduces the Muslim to just a peg in a unity that needs to be basically focused upon. And that unity has to be basically, it gets to be embodied by the, the organization, whether it's Al Qaeda or the Islamic State. And then it's the survival of the leader and the survival of the leadership, at least, is what matters. So here we have, uh, uh, I'm proposing to you that when, when we talk about the need to challenge political culture in Iraq, is to move away from the reductionism that has basically produced what in Iraq has been in currency, in dominant currency throughout, to the notion of the state of its citizens, to, to the notion of um, basically varying the individual. I'll, I'll probably get a little bit more into that, but what I need to talk about, in addition to that, that there needs to be a rene- renegotiation, uh, a rediscussion of the place of Iraq in civilization. And I do not mean the place of Iraq in Islamic civilization, I do not mean the place of Iraq in uh, Near Eastern civilization. I mean the place of Iraq in the global civilization that we have today. It is uh, interesting to see that, for example, while uh, in the West, very often there there is the sense that uh, the antiquity of Western civilization is Greek and Roman, for the Greeks themselves and therefore for the Romans who looked up to the Greek as their... uh, uh, if you'd like, a frame of reference or as uh, uh, their a, a cultural origins. For the Greeks themselves, the frame of reference actually included Mesopotamia and Egypt. But in this case, let's focus on Mesopotamia. I mean, one can think, for example, of the Hellenistic period of Berossus in particular, and uh, his uh, highlighting of that, but even if we go beyond that. So the, the issue here is that it is not uncommon for uh, intellectuals in the West to recognize that the seeds of Western civilization are in Sumeria, are in Mesopotamia. After all, semiotically, we are all still framed by this early Mesopotamian, early Sumerian uh, uh, norms, whether our hour, which is 60 minutes, or our week, uh, seven days, our zodiac, etc. Semiotically, we are framed, but beyond. I'm mentioning all of this just in order to say that there is a need in Iraq, to reappropriate its own history, and it's happening. This is not something, this is not a novel idea for Iraqis. I mean, mentioning here a lot of uh, current Iraqi attempts at this, in this direction, not ones that seek to isolate in order to create internal narratives of dispute. You we are uh, the descendants of X, while you, my Iraqi neighbor of another clan, sect, uh, religion, you are not. No, I'm talking about what is clearly the case in Iraq that has, that has been part of a global civilization and needs to be restored in the minds, in, 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 in the culture of Iraq today, even the political one, into that level. So he, here, I would, I meaning we can have, uh, in terms of the, the themes that I'm mentioning, we can have two s- small, very quick case studies. One, a case study in reductionism. And you keep in mind the Iraqi flag, uh, of um, pre 1990 uh, the flag of uh, the, the flag of Iraq prior to the Gulf war had um, three green stars in the middle of three stripes of red white and black these are pan arab colors and the three stripes date back to a certain uh, too many one of many attempts i mean they get to be reinterpreted all the time but one of many attempts at Arab unity, again, in that to push for reductions. Well, in the course of the Gulf War, Saddam Hussein added the two words, Allahu Akbar, to the flag with his own handwriting. And through multiple iterations that actually we can point to almost as kind of reducing the flag more and more, the flag of Iraq today still carries Saddam Hussein's religious words, Allahu Akbar, despite the fact that the Stars have been removed, but the colors remain the same. I'm mentioning here that we have not been able to step out of this kind of the reductionist mindset that led to this flag. The missed opportunity, in my mind, as a non-Iraqi, but as, as someone who looks with with the extent uh, with extensive love and admiration to Iraq, is the missed opportunity of the Rifat Shadegi flag. flag is a renowned uh, architect from Iraq who uh, died recently, uh, a thinker, a deep, uh, a theorist, really, of uh, not just of uh, architecture, but uh, of notions of culture. He proposed a flag that outraged many in Iraq. This flag is, in in more ways than one, Rifat Shalegi's attempt at relinking Iraq, not just to its deep history and not limiting it to uh, basically the phases of its history that have been called by the reductionists in the past phases. But I think the the missing that opportunity is something to look at as an indication of how reductionism remains, basically, in uh, Iraqi culture. And maybe it's it's also talking about the flag. I mean, I have here to note, Iraq has and had even more so a substantive uh, Christian Iraqi population that evidently was at least uh, not totally in comfort with the, with the flag since uh, Saddam added Allahu Akbar this is what i find amazing is that in some cases this community in, especially in church events replaced Allahu Akbar by Allah Mahabba God is love which is a christian statement but nonetheless is uh, Uh, kind of compatible with all religious uh, 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 tendencies, religious denominations in Iraq. The the issue here, I'm mentioning it just to say that there is negotiation, even with this reductionism, that ought to be recognized. And this negotiation is in the direction of asserting Iraq as basically heir to a culture far larger than what the reductionists would like to see happen. So, uh, another case study which is of extreme value, and I, I'd, I'd suggest to you that uh, it is a defining moment in current intellectual, uh, in recent uh, Iraqi intellectual history is Kanan Makiya's Republic of Iraq. Here what we have for the first time, maybe not just in Iraq, but across Arab culture, is an attempt through this book that uh, Kanan Makiya uh, published anonymously to start with. Uh, uh, actually, he took a uh, pseudonym actually, but later on clearly acknowledged it, is an attempt at trying to find the, the, the roots of self-destruction in oneself, as opposed to uh, try to, 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 to assign the destruction that, that that is suffered in society, in politics, in culture, to the other outside. Kanan Makiya's book, The Republic of Fear, was an eye-opener for many Iraqis. Actually, it, it was published in the, in the 80s, but it, uh, it really shaped a generation of Iraqis uh, that uh, only today are beginning to assume uh, a position of power. The, the generation before, which in some cases shared, in some cases disputed, Kanan Maqiyah's uh, critique, auto-critique, self-critique of, of Iraq, is now uh, apparently, hopefully actually, yielding to the to the new generation that looks at the matters in, fra, from a perspective that is far less dogmatic and far less reductionist. The, 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 change, the cultural change that is needed, and this is part of the challenge that faces uh, 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 Mustafa al Qadimi in, uh, in, in the next phase, is therefore not just one that is limited to notions of uh, addressing the, the, the big, the concrete challenges, but also, in particular, how to help transition Iraq uh, from a set of elements of mindset that are really, uh, um, basically, if not destructive, at least obstacles to move forward elsewhere. What we're talking about is a transition from a mode of patriarchy to citizen sovereignty. I'll share with you here an anecdote, but it's uh, to me, it remained relevant throughout. I went to Iraq after the fall of the regime, a driver took me from Jordan to uh, Baghdad, and we got to talk a lot. In the course of talking to him, he mentions to me, he says, yeah, I concede, I agree, Uh, Saddam Hussein was very harsh and was actually uh, very unjust in in many cases. However, he was a father. He, He was a harsh father, he was maybe an unjust father, but now we are without a father. This notion of patriarchy, this notion uh, of uh, thinking of the leadership, thinking of the political leadership as being the frame of reference in a family model is actually dominant across the region. This is not limited to Iraq. It's not even limited to the region, but is goes contrary to the whole notion of citizen sovereignty, that ultimately uh, the the, the prime minister, the president is a public servant. He is not the father. And this transition from patriarchy to citizen sovereignty is one that is difficult and uh, it entails a lot. For example, what what we have, what we uh, currently have, is part of the protests in Iraq is demands on the part of um, the, the university graduates to have employment. They want guaranteed employment. And here again, so in addition to patriarchy, uh, basically having to move towards citizen sovereignty, uh, moving from paternalism to a sense of entitlement towards this father figure to the state. Uh, so moving, moving um, I mean, from paternalism and this sense of entitlement to a culture of individualism and empowerment. the idea is that it's not just that the state is not father, the state is not mother. The state is not supposed to be the the, the party that provides the employment. It is supposed to frame the conditions that allows you as an individual to uh, basically innovate and create and be empowered to uh, seek happiness, seek wealth seek uh, uh, fulfillment. So th- this is a major cultural shift that remains actually a um, work in progress at, at the very best. I'm glad to see that there, there are lots of Iraqis who are pushing in that direction, and uh, among them actually the, the, the prime minister, but it, the, 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 the bulk of the culture remains in, uh, in the mode of that uh, even if that were to happen later on, you cannot drop us midway. We need the employment now, and then let's work on changing the culture, which is a fair point. Um, the, the third element that requires a serious uh, reconsideration in, in, the, in, in political culture in Iraq is to transition from the perpetual sense of victimhood to a sense of self-responsibility. This is not at all, cannot be equated to basically promoting impunity or uh, diluting accountability these are two facets of the same uh, uh, of the same pattern of progress in iraq very very often in iraq across the region it is narratives of historical victimhood that dominate but as a result there's an avoidance of trying to address the the, uh, the, the issues at hand and this is exactly i think what uh, um, uh, Kanan Makiya has called for to to, to face. And this is, I think he was on point, this is a a question not just for Iraqi, for everyone in the region, the the notion that uh, self-responsibility and the responsibility of one's own society, one's own family, one's own heritage, one's own tradition, to the situation that we're in need to be ex- explored. And finally, another element that actually is crucially important for, for the Iraq of the future to, to, to work on is the whole notion of moving away from, a, from the logic that assume that um, because it's a an frontier state, because we're getting uh, funds basically from uh, selling oil, it's a zero-sum game. If you get more, I get less. If Iraq ten- t- uh, basically transitions to, to a productive, uh, mindset and to a productive economy, well, we can start thinking about uh, basically a win-win mindset that might end up uh, bas- uh, helping Iraq position itself, not where it should be uh, as uh, uh, a leader in the Middle East, but also beyond that, into, uh, to, to, to regain its place in the world community, a place of, uh, that, that it has been denied by dictatorship by war and by terrorism, and lately by Iranian hegemony. I'll stop at that, and Bob, I'll be glad to take your
0: questions. Thank you very much for that very illuminating uh, talk. I know that your efforts in Iraq and Kanan Makiya's were to fight Saddam nostalgia immediately after the fall of the regime. Uh, because of chaos obtained after the fall, and people were already becoming nostalgic. Therefore, that very powerful one-hour television program that you produced, I think called Light or Overcoming the Legacy of Evil, had as part of it Steven Spielberg-type interviews with victims of Saddam and as you know, he was an equal opportunity persecutor. And the hope seemed to be that this enormous fund of suffering in Iraq, that was across denomination, across tribal boundaries, would meld the Iraqi people and bring them together for this new endeavor, this new chance they had for a constitutional government. <clears throat> So it's disturbing to hear you say that uh, Saddam nostalgia is still there. In a way, it reminds me of what we hear from Russia that there's a great deal of Stalin nostalgia. In fact, it's reputedly exist amongst the majority of the Russian population how big an obstacle is that to the endeavor that you have just outlined? Um, I I think we ought to take it seriously but we do not we
1: do not need to assume that is uh, a long-lasting obstacle if dealt with appropriately. I mean let me here underline the fact that very often it is not a real nostalgia. I mean it's a false nostalgia in the sense it's, it's always uh, kind of uh, selectively uh, retrieving elements that can be uh, presented in a good light and ignoring the major elements that that are horrific. But it is not even this. Very often it is meant to be a provocative assault on another. By that I mean, uh, for example, uh, there is, uh, unfortunately, a deep factionalism in some segments of Iraqi society and therefore this factionalism is often, uh, the, the Saddam meme, if you'd like, is recycled in order to provoke, in order to uh, insult on the basis of uh, basic, by, by recalling the nemesis of the other rather than the hero of the self. Not that there are quite a few, whether they, are, they pretend to be uh, uh, nationalists in, in an Arab Iraqi sense, mind you, uh, uh, they may even pretend to be pan-Arab nationalists, but their concerns really go beyond uh, the, the Iraqi uh, uh, horizon, but those may try to elevate Saddam into a figure of uh, leadership, of historical leadership, but it's really mostly in terms of trying to deal with this false nostalgia. It's, I think it's extremely important not to let that history of persecution which is dramatically different from if you like your run of the male dictatorship not to let it slide not to let it be forgotten but the the, the issue here and this is uh, uh, <coughs> becomes uh, it's important to tie it to it um, the horrors committed by the Saddam regime are actually uh, have been continued the fall of the regime by the horror committed by the islamic state and in some cases by reactions to the islamic state so one cannot simply talk about the period of dictatorship as if with with its end we have witnessed the end of the horrors that iraqis face and therefore it's important ultimately the 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 original impetus of trying to critically self-critically address that period it's important to revive it while not limiting it to that period, to, to include within it what has happened since. And uh, I think this is the first time, again, without, uh, uh, our, uh, uh, without, without here putting too much uh, responsibility on the shoulders of a prime minister that's trying to, uh, uh, first of all, immediately lift Iraq from uh, the many holes that, uh, that, that it is in, But uh, to address that whole issue, the fact that you have grievances of a cultural historical type in addition to grievances that are about uh, uh, suffering and deep suffering, I think uh, this is why uh, I'm I'm suggesting to you that uh, saving Iraq entails addressing it
0: structurally but also culturally. Hassan, you know Mustafa Khademi very well. Uh, Could you speak To his background and personal qualities that may enable him to deal with, and perhaps overcome, what seem to be insurmountable difficulties?
1: Well, uh, yeah, to to the extent, without betraying any, any, if you'd like, uh, uh, um, privacy issues here, but I'll I'll tell you the following about him for sure. From my perspective, as someone who has known him, who has worked with him, and who uh, actually prides myself on being a friend of of his, I would say that this is a principled man who has sacrificed a lot to get where he is as Prime Minister of Iraq, while he did not need to be. He did not need to sacrifice. He did not... uh, This is not... Basically, he has never been part of... uh, that uh, circle of uh, kleptocrats. I mean, actually, I would, uh, uh, I think he would challenge anyone to basically try to uh, reveal any kind of uh, corruption or anything associated with him. This is someone who um, uh, starts with a, from a, from a conservative background, uh, gradually um, embraces uh, a very, uh, I would say, compatible combination of uh, patriotism and universalism I mean, this is someone who values iraq above all but does not ignore quite the opposite puts human rights and universal values as front and center of his vision of iraq and this is uh, i think these, this is why i, I suggested uh, in my remarks that he might constitute a paradigm shift in being uh, a new prime minister in iraq because this is not just about a new generation, the generation of those who uh, were young during the Iraq-Iran war and therefore witnessed it, but not as, uh, as participants, witnessed it from the sides, and then were not in leadership positions in the course of the 90s, leading to the fall of uh, the, the dictatorship, but nonetheless participated to the extent that they could as foot soldiers, if you'd like, in that effort. Mustafa is one of those, so he has lived the Iraqi experience of uh, uh, being under a brutal dictatorship, of resisting that brutal, brutal dictatorship. But he was not affected by the ideological burdens that uh, are faced by uh, by the generation that just passed, of having to accommodate, having to adjust, having to uh, rework their ideological legacy in terms of. Uh, The Iraq of today. He comes to to Iraq to the the new Iraq with a with a fresh outlook that is very uh, humanist, very universal, and therefore uh, uh, one can expect him in terms of uh, personal capacities and personal qualities to uh, to do the right thing, to make the right choices. But it goes beyond the person; it goes beyond the individual. There's the limitation of what is possible, and they, these, this is—it's basically the test for Mustafa—is what comes next in terms of how he's going to be uh, able to deal with the realities underground while remaining true to his country.
0: And I guess part of the question, Hassan, is how appealing to the Iraqi people is that humanist perspective that Mustafa Academy, uh has.
1: I would say today the judgment of Mustafa is not on the basis of his, uh, uh, if you like, philosophy. It's on the basis of the steps that he takes. And uh, um, a a recent poll that I've uh, had a look at indicates that uh, contrary to what used to happen in the past, he has uh, a solid majority, a two-third majority of people who approve of the steps that he has taken. But actually, I would, I'm not sure about the methodology of uh, this poll in terms of asking about philosophy, but I would suggest from just uh, uh, following uh, Iraqi social media that uh, that humanist, patriotic, universal kind of outlook, one that does not ignore uh, 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 Iraq at all, quite the opposite. Iraq is still front and center, but nonetheless, it is a universal framework, a global framework in terms of values is shared by a large uh, portion of uh, those who protested the the failure of uh, the new Iraq in the the form of these uh, demonstrations that were targeted by Iranian proxies and uh, hundreds of protesters who were killed. And therefore, um, while might not be happy with uh, his ability to deliver, because Iraq is effectively bankrupt and uh, many of the protesters basically were demanding their fair share of the wealth that's no longer there. But despite the fact that indeed they are right, it is their fair share, but it is not with him for him to be able to dispense it. So they might not be happy with some of the measures that he takes, but nonetheless, I would say that this is the first time that uh, we witness in Iraq since the fall of uh, the dictatorial regime, we witness a government that is uh, actually understood by the by, uh, the society that it is trying to engage in steps for the benefit of this society on the basis of a vision that is not factional, that is not sectarian, that is not kleptocratic.
0: You mentioned patriotism, and that was going to be my next question: of how strong is it as uh, a source upon which uh, Mustafa Academy can can draw. Uh, Keeping in mind those demonstrations in Basra and elsewhere that were directed against exactly the Iranian hegemony about which you spoke earlier, yeah, is that a is that a, a of sufficient strength that he can call upon it to achieve his ends?
1: It is positively an element that he can call upon, that my calling upon, and absolutely you should rely on, but let's be clear about it. And this is important for a non-Iraqi audience, for a Western audience. There has been a narrative that has really have become almost dogma in uh, the Western media, even in Western scholarship at times, that Iraq is an artificial country that was put together back in the uh, 100 years ago after uh, the, 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 the Great War, the First World War, And Iraq really is made of three major uh, ethnic groups, Sunni Arabs, Shi'i Arabs, and Kurds. And uh, as a result, we have even politicians, including, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Vice President Joe Biden, who have suggested, uh, well, let's get done with it and divide Iraq to those uh, three (laughs) entities. And we have even witnessed, for example, a certain level of autonomy in Iraq. Kurdistan of Iraq, and therefore even uh, Kurdish nationalists have insisted that this is part of something bigger, because the Kurds were the largest uh, national group that was, that, that was ignored in the aftermath of, of the First World War. <clears throat> I'm not at all here dismissing the depth of um, Kurdish nationalism, Kurdish the sense of Kurdish identity, quite the opposite. But I'll suggest to you the following. These are multiple facets of a population across Iraq that has really a high high degree of mingling. For example, among the Sunni Iraqis, you will find many of Kurdish origin. Among the Kurdish-speaking Iraqis, you would find clans and tribes of Arab tribal origin. Sunnis and Shias, the intermarriage rates prior to to, to the war was at a point where basically we're talking in urban settings, wherever they, 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 they are together, that uh, the, the intermarriage rate is such that it's really one community. So these are not realities fixed in, in stone, to talk about Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. These are a reflection of an immediate history, while if you take the longer trends within Iraqi history, you can find basically threads that continue from uh, the times of Sumer up until today, you see ta- times, uh, threads of behavior, of values, of uh, patterns that are there. And therefore, we have here the, the possibility of really reviving, of highlighting the commonalities is, is there. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the differences between the various communities in Iraq is really uh, at the level of uh, surface and ritual, not at the level of society. And I think many in Iraq today are not only aware of that, but are relying on that in order to tell those who have tried to box them in communitarian, sectarian, and factional entities, that we are not you. I mean, too bad for you. Your ideology took over your your vision of the world. Our ideology is not yours. Our vision is one of, uh, basically nation in the the patriotic sense, not in the the folk sense, and humanity. And this is something that is seen throughout. This is, without it being expressed the way I'm expressing it necessarily, although some have done a far better job expressing it, but this was the the reason why for many to, to say, do not try to sell us that Shia bond between Iran and Iraq. We are Shia and proud to be. But we are not only Shia, we are Iraqis, and we have far more in common with our Iraqi next door, whether Christian, Shia, Mandai, Shabak, whatever he is, than with Iranians. Not that we do not have connections with Iranians, we have plenty. But the the connection that you're trying to promote is one with an Iranian regime, not with an Iranian population that is actually on a continuum basis with us. So, So we have a certain maturity at the level of the new generation That was not there, really, uh, amongst ideologues. And yes, I mean, the new government of Iraq has to rely on it in order not just to highlight and enhance the sense of patriotism, but it's it's a patriotism that ought not in any way be one that looks at the other, whoever this other is, whether it's Iranian, Saudi, Israeli, Syrian, Turkish, as being basically the enemy. The enemy ought to be, basically, uh, backwardness. The enemy ought to be poverty. The enemy ought to be the threats to the environment and the threats to, to uh, world peace. The, the, the enemy ought to be the coronavirus. I did not even mention this, but clearly, except in mentioning the, 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 the standard, uh, basically, challenges. I mean, the, here we have COVID-19 also not having been felt in Iraq the way it could still get to be. But these are the real enemies, and I think there's a certain consciousness, a certain awareness at the level of uh, the the new Iraqi generation that ought to invite the older Iraqi generation that is more stuck on ideology to uh, basically step aside and let the new generation own its present in order for it to own its future.
0: Uh, Hassan, your mention of the Sumer spurred a painful memory uh, about, the first national newspaper that was begun in Iraq in two thousand three, after the fall of Saddam, by that great dean of Iraqi journalism was it was it Hassan Alawi. Do you remember? It was yes. called It was called Sumer. Yes, yes, yes. It was brilliant. Absolutely, and actually, it was a brilliant uh, newspaper that aimed to achieve that sense of national unity. Based exactly on the grounds that you have just articulated. And uh, I remember uh, Kanan Makia going to the coalition provisional authority head to try to reverse his decision to shut that newspaper down. Unfortunately, he couldn't be dissuaded, and that was a, a lost opportunity. But I, not to dwell on that, I have another like to. Uh, Closed with a question raised by your very profound analysis of the cultural issues, the cultural framework. In the West, there was a similar period of patriarchal government, which was called the divine right of kings, in which the king presented himself as the father of his people, and his subjects were his children, and uh, he was to exercise patriarchal authority over them. They could not disobey the father. The father was above the law. He gave the children, etc. And then there was a secular expression of uh, state absolutism in the teaching of uh, Thomas Hobbes's famous book *Leviathan*, that comports perfectly with what you were describing, that the individual does not exist as a person outside of his membership in the state. He's totally subsumed by the state. Now in the West, luckily, there were older traditions in Christian political philosophy going back to the Middle Ages to to fight these ideas that, no, no, actually, the people are sovereign. Uh, sovereignty is invested in them, not in the, in this king, and there's a requirement for their consent and so forth. So after a period of struggle, uh, we saw the development of democratic constitutional government. So that the question is: within uh, Iraqi Islamic culture, are there traditions? Older traditions to which they can turn to break this patriarchal notion, which, as you know, in fact, we haven't discussed uh, to what extent that obtains in tribal life and to what extent the notion of tribal allegiance uh, still obtains in Iraq today, that can break that notion of patriarchy and restore or give a sense of, of the popular sovereignty and of the the individual's autonomy quite apart from state. That's a tough one. That would may be another lecture. I I know <laughs> I, I, I have to count on you, Bob, to
1: basically uh, ask me a question in the closing minutes <laughs> <laughs> that require probably a series of uh, discussion, but let me let me be clear. Uh, we, we have a situation today. I mean, clearly, the, the, the trajectories of the evolution of, uh, uh, if you like, the, the relationship between church and state in the West and uh, religious thought in the East, these are different tracks. I mean, they do not, they, they have not followed, uh, if you like, they are not in parallel. They do not, there's no linear path here or there in order to. To be able to identify equivalents, uh, a- for for some elements that basically enabled the enlightenment in the West. Okay, but I would sub- submit to you the following, and this is crucially important: that uh, the um, tradition, which is very much the scholastic tradition in Islam, is representative of the Islam of the scholars, of the Islam of the state may have been accepted in theory as representative of beyond by Muslims in their everyday life, but it was overwhelmingly not so in reality. What I'm pointing to here, again, this is a very wide subject, is that much of the concerns, much of the output of the scholastic tradition of jurisprudence in the scholastic tradition and beyond jurisprudence was how to deal with this Overwhelming majority of Muslims that are not in uh, that are not that are not abiding to the vision that we have. You see, we do not have uh, uh, basically a, formula- a theoretical formulation for that overwhelming majority that challenges the scholastic model, but we have a practical, overwhelming practical demonstration that the challenge was there throughout. I'm mentioning this just in order not to fall into the trap of basically uh, assuming that if there has not been a formulation that basically uh, highlights and focuses on the individual, therefore this is a missing link up until it happens. Basically, we are in a deficit. I would argue the following the Enlightenment, when it reached ideas, uh, Let's hear it again without. Uh, I'm, I'm schematizing clearly. When the Eli- Enlightenment reached the region, this, the scholastic institution was at an extreme unease, while the overwhelming majority of the population was not. I Meaning, these ideas were not necessarily expressed explicitly, but they were not unknown to them. The, this is one can have a whole. Uh, really analysis on, on the basis not just of text, but, but of movements, of, uh, 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 of manifestations that have happened throughout the region of how the ideas of the Enlightenment were not foreign to this region. Not in their totality. I would argue up until today, I are not completely assimilated. I would even argue that the intellectuals very often are uh, many steps back compared to the general population in that regard. For example, conventional Islam, Again, in a, in a very, I'm stating it in a very wide way. Conventional Islam tolerated a lot of internal contradictions, even at the scholastic level, and on the basis of these contradictions, allowed very little, if you'd like, uh, uh, harshness to, to be legalized. Not that harshness did not happen, harshness happened throughout, but not necessarily as, as normative. While the modern interpretations of Islam, which tries to uh, basically uh, get away with inconsistencies, with contradictions, whether in order to create a liberal Islam or a radical Islam, okay, basically have enabled, uh, uh, are, are in, in a pattern of reductionism. This is why I was saying that the, 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 the notion, the, the need to challenge reductionism. Again, I'm, I'm in order, this is a very uh, conversation that can take a lot of time, but just to underline the following. From my point of view, Uh, And from my point of view in explicitly and from the point of view of very many people, implicitly at least, is that they're not going to wait for the scholastic institution, for the religious scholars to transcend what they have abandoned, what they have not done in terms of uh, finding those foundations. They do accept the authority of uh, uh, the religious authority as basically a frame of reference but it is one frame of reference among many. Other frames of reference include the, the, the nation, the state, society, the, 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 the world community, and therefore when the, the, the frame of reference, which is the religious authority, even if they are cherished, even if they are uh, uh, basically uh, privileged, but when they fail, society does not have to wait for them. We, we've seen that even in Iraq, for example, with regard to the, to, the, really to the outrage of the genocide of the Yazidis, genocide, enslavement, and uh, collective rape of Yazidis. Where is the religious authority here? Not just in Iraq, across the Muslim world. Where are the religious scholars who have denounced that not as harmful to Islam, but as contrary to Islam, non-existent? But does that mean that society is supposed to wait for these scholars? to find the formula in order to graduate. No. Society says, well, on the basis of other norms, our common humanity, our basically adherence to to values that are shared by everyone, we denounce it. And this is actually, this is an act of self-liberation that people have implicitly taken. In a certain sense, uh, this has been the challenge that the scholastic religious institutions across the region have faced, and that applies to Iraq. The Iraqi young people who transcend factionism, sectarianism, communitarianism, without saying what I'm saying, are effectively saying it. And this is why it gives me, and gives a lot of people a lot of hope, to look at how we're talking about the maturity of a generation that has, that has been in more ways than one short change, because the previous generation has denied it a lot of what it's, it's entitled to, but it is now ascending to a position of leadership. Let's hope for the best.
0: Hassan, thank you very much for that. You you did answer that question and condensed a tremendous amount in it. Perhaps at another Westminster talk, I can entice you to expand upon that Um, because at a certain point, there would have to be an articulation of some foundation for them uh, to proceed upon if the the changes they wish for uh, are gonna be permanent. Yeah,
1: it, it is yeah. Here, but it's not necessarily religious. It's no,
0: not- no, 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 yeah, I, I didn't mean to suggest that at all. So that's that's another program, and I hope I can get you back uh, to Westminster without this, what, it's been a three or four year hiatus, and uh, Hassan, I can't thank you. Or my, uh, so much for joining us at Westminster Institute, and uh, uh, we hope to have you back again. Thank you.
1: Thank you both.